Part 2. The Marks of Substance Chapter 3. Self-Sacrificial Love You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Galatians 5.13 A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. John 13, 34 and 35 No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12 What does substantive discipleship really look like? When we try to assemble something, we almost always have a picture, plan, or model. For example, puzzles are much easier with the box cover. So, what is the box cover of substantive spirituality? What is the image to which we should look? The obvious answer is that a substantive disciple looks like Jesus. But that only gets us so far. It assumes you already have an accurate idea of what Jesus is like. Understanding what God has shown us in and through Jesus is itself something of the puzzle we are putting together. If you have read the Gospels, you know that it took Jesus' own disciples quite a long time to really figure out what he meant by his teachings, the significance of his death, and the meaning of his resurrection. This is not because Jesus is hard to understand. It's because our worldliness makes it hard for us to understand him. Jesus is constantly mischaracterized and misunderstood, even by Christians and churches. When we're captured by worldliness, we make Jesus look like us while saying we are becoming more like him. If we are worldly, then it's likely our picture of Jesus is much more worldly than we want to admit. In fact, our picture of Jesus might be the very thing we need to fix in order to have a clear picture of godliness. Think about it this way. Before sending Jesus, God sent 1,500 years of divine revelation for Jesus to fulfill. And now that he has come, We don't just have the four accounts of his life in the New Testament. We also have 23 other books to help us understand what his life and teaching mean. Think also of why God established a chosen people, prophets, and the covenant. God went to great lengths to keep us from misunderstanding Jesus. The Old Testament books set the context for this coming and tell us what it's supposed to mean. The New Testament books theologically interpret the meaning of his life, death, and resurrection for us. Even the gospel themselves, the four books that record the life of Jesus, were written not only as records of events, but as guides for understanding the significance of Jesus' life and work. Being Godly, Being Saved Before we go too far, it's important to remember that we're talking about a picture of godliness, not the gospel. If you confuse the gospel, how we are saved and changed with godliness, what we're changed to be and why, then the beauty of grace and divine generosity is deformed. Trying to earn godliness neither gains forgiveness nor is of any use in the deep transformation of the heart. The simplest summary of the gospel is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3-5. through 5. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. That is the Christian gospel, which means good news, is the fact that Jesus has died to pardon your sins and has risen from the dead. 
His rising demonstrates he has accomplished God's design and defeated sin and death with their guilt, shame, alienation, and punishment. You can receive all these liberating benefits of his victory through faith. That is, faith is repentant, meaning it admits wrongdoing, rejects the old way of rebellion, and turns to Christ to receive everything we need. These acts together are often summarized as repentance and faith. With this forgiveness comes new spiritual life. When we are in Christ, God is with us, John 14, verses 16 and 17. He will transform us into what he has declared us to be in Christ. He will first make us righteous in Christ through faith, and then he'll make us godly through Christ by that same faith. The question of this book is, what does that look like? What is God transforming us into? How can we know so that out of joy, faith, hope, and thankfulness, we can throw our full strength into cooperating with him? Defining Spiritual Substance the Bible defines godliness on every page, in multiple cultures, and on different continents. Its definition can be seen through biography, narrative, and teaching, and supremely in the Savior Jesus himself. Taken together, the scriptures all weave a rich and full picture of God's character and how we are called to be like him. So, one solution to defining godliness is to read the whole Bible, but that could take a little while. We need to get started faster than that. A few parts of the Bible are especially concise in their attention to godliness, and they serve as puzzle covers for the understanding what godliness looks like. We'll look at a few key examples. After a long section on the true nature of love in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul gave this summary. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love, verse 13. In Romans 13, 8-10, he summarizes it this way, Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. In Galatians 5, Paul argues that virtue and spiritual freedom come from Christ and the Spirit through faith. These aren't for indulging the flesh. Virtue and spiritual freedom should produce serving love. He says, For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5, 5 and 6, and verses 13 through 14. In each of these passages and others, Paul is quoting Jesus, teaching on the most important command of God, recorded by three of the Gospel writers. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39. In Matthew's account, he adds this statement. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Matthew 22, verse 40. 
Do you get it? By saying that love fulfills the law, he's implying that the law is a summary of love. Love fulfills the law, and the law fills out love. Love is not an open category for us to define as we feel like it. Love may be complicated, but God's commands make it concrete. Remember that Jesus also said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will be by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. The law is an expression of God's moral character. It is a summary of what God is like. In it, God consistently says, Be holy, because I am holy. Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. That is, I'm telling you about my character, what I'm like morally. You should be like this too. The part of the law that gives us God's commands may not tell us the story of how and why he created us, makes us his people, or forgives us and changes us. Those are revealed in gospel, not law, even though these can be found in the books of the law. Love and law are both summaries of God's moral substance, his virtue and character. Love is the most general reference to the whole, and the law the most specific by example. When we put together the summary of knowing God's character of holy love, it lays out something like this. 1. God's character is morally perfect, holy love. 2. Godliness is being like God in His character, also called holiness. 3. The law is a summary of that character. 4. Love is a summary of the law. And 5. Therefore, holy love is a biblical summary of godliness. Holy love is the substance of the character of God. It is displayed most completely in the life and virtue of Jesus. And it is made concrete and specific for us in God's commands, so that we can only deceive ourselves so far about love. If we start thinking something selfish and fleshly is love, we won't get far before we bump into a command that is there to help us by giving us a reality check. Bearing the Image of Holy Love God's character is holy, and from the holy love and his virtuous character, his love flows out into action. We're not supposed to try to recreate God's outflowing works of creation, salvation, and redemption. These are free gifts. He does not demand that faith make us godlings, or little gods, but that it makes us godly, holy, because He is holy. We are called to pursue lives flowing out in works of similar character. Godliness means imitating His outflowing holy love through all the ways we bear His image. Although we can't be creators of a universe, holy love can motivate an outpouring of creativity and productivity. We can't sacrifice ourselves to purchase forgiveness for any part of humanity, but holy love pours out sacrificial forgiveness toward those who commit offenses against us. We can't redeem the world's guilt, but we can be redeemers who claim back people, relationships, land, and much of life from degradation and destruction. In fact, all the actions of the outflowing life are sacrificially generous, especially to the undeserving. God does not function out of a mindset of scarcity or based on what people deserve. God's holy love is gracious, freely generous. Jesus told his disciples, 
Freely you have received, freely give. Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. When we give, there is something we do without. Our sacrifice is usually related to the reality of scarcity. Is God's love sacrificial? He doesn't experience scarcity, but then again, much of our scarcity is the result of sin, not simple limitations of creation. God sacrifices when something is either or, when logic itself dictates you can't have both. For example, whenever the glorious holy God loves rebellious humans, that love always requires his forbearance toward their constant and countless insults against his divine majesty which is a continual sacrifice on his part. Then, in order for God to be just toward sin's crime and also redeem us, sacrifice was necessary in Jesus. Romans chapter 3, verse 26. So even God, who lacks no resources, must still choose to sacrifice some things in order to gain others. Even God sacrifices to be generous. Holy love gives to create and gives sacrificially to redeem. This is what we emulate. Therefore, godliness looks like outflowing, self-sacrificial, generous, holy love expressed through God's image in us. Love is the queen of the spiritual pursuits that produces spiritual substance because it is itself spiritual substance. It is the first pursuit because it is also the central goal. Holy love is at the white-hot center of the character of God, and it is the part of His character He's commanded us to imitate. This is how we bear His image. This is what it means for us to be like God, godliness. Knowing love for what she is, the company love keeps. We started on this path of defining love because we wanted a clearer understanding of substance than be like Jesus. Yet, is it really any clearer to say be loving? Not unless we take things a step further. The word love can be distorted even more easily than the character of Jesus. We already hinted at the answer of this question above. Love is known by the company she keeps, virtues, and the house she lives in, God's commands. Just as you can know someone by the company they keep, so you can know the true nature of love. Let's look at these two companions to love, virtue and God's commands. First, there are many examples of scriptures presenting love in the company of her sister virtues. Paul is known for speaking of faith, hope, and love together. In Galatians 5, love is the company of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and opposed to the acts, vices of the flesh, Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. In Philippians 2, love is accompanied by humility, tenderness, compassion, desire for unity, and other virtues that display the nature of love. Above all, we know love in relation to her twin sister, humility, since self-forgiveness is the other side of seeing and remembering others. Love's nature is clearest when surrounded by these accompanying virtues. In this way, we can imagine love as a queen with amnesia, not sure where she came from or who she is. She might be persuaded she's a barmaid, thief, or a slave. We see this when selfishness and sin of all kinds are passed off as love. But when queen love is in the presence of her sisters, the virtues, she remembers herself and her dignity. In this illustration, we are actually the ones who forget the face of the queen. When she's surrounded by her sisters, we see her face for who she is. 
In the scriptures, love is always shown in the company of her companion virtues, because they are also the company she keeps in all of life, in God's kingdom and righteousness, here and now. Second, many scriptures also test our love against our obedience to God's objective commands. If God's commands are examples of his holy love, then they are all examples of right answers to the question, what is loving? In Romans 13, verses 8-10, through 10, Paul shows that all of the Old Testament laws are examples of what it means to love, all 613 of them. Jesus said, All of the law and the prophets hang on the command to love God and love your neighbor. Matthew 22, verse 40. God's laws are the ethics of real love. Take just the Ten Commandments as an example. People who love God don't give their allegiance to other gods and don't take his name lightly in vain. People who love their neighbors don't minimize God, use his name vainly, work people when they should let them rest, humiliate the dignity of parents, murder people, steal from people, commit adultery with other people's wives or husbands, or covet others' property. The things God commands are always loving, and their inverse is always unloving. In this sense, every biblical command gives us part of the definition of love worked out in practical situations. They comprise the solid house in which love lives. Therefore, if someone calls something love that violates a commandment, then we know that something is distorted. It is not truly love. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6. The whole Bible helps us check our definition of love. Every verse tests our summary of godliness, correcting the distortions of temptation, worldliness, and the flesh. Love is always in the company of God's revealed laws and virtues. Love's true nature, a feeling or an action? So let's summarize this first of the four marks of spiritual substance. Substantive spirituality is best displayed in virtuous, self-forgetful, self-sacrificial, holy love. Everywhere in the Bible, these characteristics always accompany love. They are her closest sisters. Love is always virtuous. Love does not contradict the right application of the other virtues. She is always in loving harmony with them, since every virtue is a means of love. Love is always humble and self-forgetful, because only this view of ourselves opens us fully to love, joy, wonder, and thankfulness. Only humility can make us outflowing people. In being outflowing and generous, love is always self-sacrificial. Love sacrifices for the good of others and does so out of its own resources. Finally, love is always holy, taking its character from the character of God. When we understand love in this way, we will never argue again about whether love is a feeling or an action. It is neither, and it always produces both. People who love others will have affection or compassion, which are loving feelings. Love will always motivate a response, whether service, enjoyment, sacrifice, or a hundred other expressions. So, what is love? Is it too abstract to nail down? Is John's summary, God is love, 1 John 4, 8b, the best thing we can say? We could try to describe it artistically as something like, love is the affluence of truth, goodness, and beauty enjoying each other in eternal radiance. That might work, but at its base, love is an attribute of being, which we call a virtue. Love produces feelings. Love motivates actions. 
But ultimately, love is a feature of our character, which is the frame upon which our being is built. Once we see this, we can see that love is the moral energy that animates the expression of truth, goodness, and beauty in the world. When the divine power of the Holy Spirit applies the divine character of holy love in us through faith, the result is 10,000 expressions of spiritual substance embodied in self-forgetful, self-sacrificial, virtuous human action. And these sublime divine actions gush forth in utterly practical incarnations, planning, cleaning, repairing, ordering, defending, comforting, nurturing, forming. Love on Monday. One of the strangest things about love is that we can't unleash its spiritual greatness without our bodies. For all our fantasies, we are not merely psychic beings. Love has to come out of us through speech, embrace, work, listening, waiting, suffering, cleaning, and cooking. We have a sauce spoon at our house that is inscribed with the words, Cooking is love made edible. One could adapt that saying to a myriad of different activities. So, what does mature love in a substantive disciple look like in physical demonstration? The first step is looking past our distorted view of romance. So much of our romance is hateful rather than loving. But even at its best, romance is only a tiny sliver of opportunity for love in the world. Let's look at three very practical categories of mature love. Number one, counting the ordinary. Substantive discipleship starts with the absolute embrace of the ordinary as our primary context for love. The eighth chapter of this book is dedicated to this, so I won't talk much about it here. However, learning to love in and through embracing every ordinary moment in the present is critical to both real love and true contentment in an anxious and resentful world. Number two, making people our business. God's image bearers are the primary applications of love. God loves people incredibly. Jesus makes no secret of the fact that he came primarily to redeem people. Mark 6:34, Luke 15, also Luke 19:9 and 10, John 13 verse 35. I suspect it's because humans are the only moral beings that must cooperate with redemption. He can recreate and redeem all of the rest of creation without its consent. It seems that only humans bear his image in knowledge and life. Only we are moral and everlasting beings. Apparently, this requires us to be redeemed in a different way than everything else. We must be saved through revelation, sacrifice, repentance, faith, and transformation. For this and other reasons, we must make people our business. This is not an extrovert versus introvert question, nor is it a task-oriented versus people-oriented question. I'm a task-oriented introvert. My hunting buddies call me the lone wolf because I can spend days alone in the woods and like it. I don't feel the need for people, and I prefer to do my work alone. Yet people are God's goal. Jesus said, Come follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. Matthew 4.19 and Mark 1.17. One can seek a lost coin, Luke 15, 8-10, or fish for people in a thousand human ways. Many of those ways can be with a few people doing tasks that help others. But if heaven really rejoices more over one person who is found and over 99 who don't need to be found, then making redemption our business means making people our business. 
Over time, we'll see that sharing our faith, expressing hospitality, carrying others' burdens, developing friendship, seeking intergenerational and multi-ethnic unity, and including dysfunctional people are all part of love, specifically by making other people our business. They are the basics of love moving through a human body. They are also the starting points for the next category. Number three, social justice. We have responsibilities to people outside our family. The term social justice, born out of Catholic thought, was meant to signify the virtue of giving to society what we justly owe it through the mechanisms of civil society, all institutions between the individual and the government. All of our just responsibilities to others comprise the demands of social virtue. Fulfilling the social virtues is to live according to social justice. This is a thoroughly biblical and Christian notion. However, the meaning of social justice has been tortured and twisted to refer to political human goals chasing the myth of progress. The term is more commonly used now to refer to a goal to be pursued through the state that we must all support in order to be good to people. The political use of the word is almost always a misuse of its biblical meaning and should be resisted by Christians. Christians should desire the largest civil society possible, since God's creation institution, the family, and redemption institution, the church, are part of that sphere. We should also desire a large civil society because virtue requires voluntary association, civil, rather than coerced association, state. Christian faith demands we and all humans should act according to conscience. Both anarchy and statism destroy the fabric of human cooperation that must function on the basis of personal trust, mutual understanding, and love. Wide liberty is the only environment in which virtue can thrive. And since social justice is a virtue, it relies on liberty, which relies on civil society being larger than government or independent individuality. Therefore, in order to understand love, we must understand what justice requires of us toward our neighbor and through what means. This includes generosity, work that enriches others, taking responsibility for care of family, fighting in just wars, paying just taxes, honoring public officials and institutions, voting using land and resources in environmentally sound ways, and other tasks. Social justice, when understood correctly, is a major part of real and practical love. Love is worth the difficulty. It is hard because it is complex and full and can take so many forms. Nor is it natural for us. In our sinful condition, we are all prone to redefine love or to avoid our responsibility to it in different ways. Our world is full of love confusion, yet... Holy love is the beating heart at the center of human purpose and redemption. She is the foretaste of eternity, the medicine and nourishment prescribed for creation. She is the first mark of godliness and God's summary of his character embodied in the law. Love is the spinning hub of spiritual substance, the queen of the virtues and the binding tie between them. Love is the most important aspect of our redeemed character, and she must be our greatest pursuit. The scriptures tell us that without her, though we might do everything, we have nothing. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith, it can move mountains, but does not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1-3 through 3. 